Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, with Gilles Moeck, AXA Group Chief Economist. The Franco-German proposal for the recovery fund is a rare ray of light in an otherwise worrying outlook for the post-pandemic global economy. Across the Atlantic, we take a quick look at the negative rate debate at the Fed. We suspect that legal and institutional constraints may matter as much as macroeconomic concerns. Of course, music from the 1970s will help us to illustrate these thorny subjects. Today is Monday, May the 25th. I'm Gilles Moeck, and you're listening to Macrocast. The danger in these moments of crisis when policymaking accelerates in bursts is to shift very quickly from extreme pessimism to hyperbolic comments every time there is progress. This approach to economic commentary adds to volatility rather than helps navigate what is indeed a very treacherous situation. For our part, we consider that the Franco-German proposal for the recovery fund is a very important step forward towards proper fiscal solidarity. There is not yet a Hamiltonian moment. Some key ingredients are lacking to make this the first step towards financial federalization. On the model of the decision by Hamilton to mutualize the debts of the states after the American Revolution. Indeed, the system would not depend on new perennial tax resources which would fund the scheme, whereas this was a crucial aspect of the Hamiltonian reforms in the 1790s. The money will come from contributions from the member states. Tax resources would help turn the system from a one-off operation to a permanent scheme. We would add that there was no real fiscal, federal, cyclical civilization capacity in the US before the New Deal in the 1930s. Historical precedents are useful, and you know that we like them a lot in Macrocast, but we should always be very prudent with our selection. Still, this Franco-German proposal is significant progress in dealing with the issue at hand, that is, helping fragile countries to deal with the economic side effects of the pandemic crisis without saddling them with even more debt. How would the Franco-German proposal work? Well, the principle is simple. The EU would issue debt in the market, directly, not through the European Stability Mechanism or the European Investment Bank, to the tune of 500 billion euros, and the proceeds would be apportioned to the regions and sectors most affected by the pandemic shock. The reimbursement of the debt, over a very long period, would be apportioned according to different key. The Franco-German document did not elaborate on the latter, but we assume that since the proposal is firmly anchored in the negotiation of the multi-annual financial framework of the EU to cover the 2021-27 period, it would not be very different from the share of each member state in the EU's total gross national income, which is currently used for determining the contributions to the EU budget. This could provide significant relief to some of the worst-hit countries. We can provide a simple illustration. 20.7% of the total number of COVID cases observed in the EU so far were in Italy. If this was used as the allocation key, Italian regions and businesses would receive around 100 billion euros from the recovery fund. But since the share of Italy in the gross national income of the EU stands at 13.2%, the country would be a net recipient to the tune of 37 billion euros, and that is 2% of its GDP. On the other side of the spectrum, Germany is much less hit by the pandemic, with only 15% of the cases, while it would shoulder 25.4% of the repayment as per its share in the gross national income. The country would be a net payer in the system to the tune of 1.4% of its own GDP. This would fit a robust definition of fiscal solidarity. Expenditure would go to where the need is. Payments would mostly come from where the capacity is. Public health criteria may not be the only guide to the allocation key. There is a strong case to focus instead on the economic damage triggered by the pandemic. It would not change much the position of Italy or Spain relative to Germany. 
Judging by GDP in the first quarter, the two southern states are among those with the steepest recessions among the bloc, while Germany is having a milder downturn. Focusing on the economic damage would help fragile countries such as Portugal or Greece, which have been dealing comparatively well with the pandemic itself, but are facing massive growth destruction as the direct impact of severe lockdowns is compounded into Q3 by a challenging tourism season. One might expect very thorny negotiations on the precise design of the location key. Even if under any plausible solution, Germany is likely to end up as a significant debt payer. Which, by the way, makes Angela Merkel's move even more generous. There is also the risk that the discussion becomes acrimonious if national governments' handling of the crisis becomes an issue. For instance, Sweden is converging towards the list of worst-hit countries under the public health criteria, while it is not obvious that despite its refusal to implement lockdown, its economic performance will be among the best. Other countries could be reluctant to enter into an arrangement which would benefit a government, potentially seen as bearing some responsibility in its own predicament. It is a theoretical concern, though, at this stage, since Sweden is part of the frugal four countries led by Austria, which are opposing the Franco-German approach. The other two are Denmark and the Netherlands. Austrian Chancellor Kurz is leading the pack and wants to stick to the notion that fiscal solidarity should continue to take the form of loans. Even though these countries are relatively small and two of them are not even members of the monetary union, their opposition matters. Since the recovery fund would be incorporated in the EU budget under the Franco-German proposal, unanimity rules apply. To be more precise, while qualified majority at the EU Council combined with simple majority at the European Parliament is enough for the annual budget of the various EU schemes, maximum spending under the multi-annual financial framework requires unanimity of the Council. Paralysis is avoided if no agreement is found by merely rolling the existing spending limits forward, but obviously this means that a new scheme, such as the recovery fund, could not be added. At a bit less than 4% of the EU GDP, it would present a nearly fourfold increase in the overall size of the EU budget. We should thus expect a long and complex negotiation. We want to believe the frugal four position to the Franco-German proposal is an opening gambit, and that they will ultimately have to accept the principle of the recovery fund as laid out by Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. But they will want to trade this against some form of rebate, either in the repayment key of the fund or via other aspects of the multiannual financial framework. We find it interesting that in the two pages long non-paper they issued over the weekend, they mentioned that their position on the multi-annual financial framework is unchanged. We continue to request that national contributions are limited and we recall that the rationale behind corrections remain valid. End of quote. It is also possible that persistent opposition would trigger some domestic backlash. For instance, in Austria, where Kurz conservatives are in coalition with the more pro-European Greens who, although they have yet to declare their support to the Franco-German initiative, may increasingly feel uncomfortable siding with the proponents of austerity. Unfortunately, we don't expect opposition to be limited to the frugal four. Before the recovery fund initiative was mooted, the number of contentious issues with the eastern countries was already daunting. They could play it hard on the recovery fund in exchange for a protection of their share into the run-of-the-mill structural funds. Moreover, the Franco-German package has a green tinge in the sense that the recovery spending should support investments contributing to the green transition. As we have already discussed in Macrocast, the eastern countries have been increasingly vocal against the Green Pact. In the meantime, this suggests the ECB will remain on the hook, and we expect noisy moments during the negotiations 
which will trigger some volatility on the most fragile bond markets. The proposal by Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron may buy the central bank a bit of time, but this does not change the substance of our discussion in last week's macrocast of the ECB options. They will have to increase the size of their pandemic emergency purchase program. Anglo-Saxon central banks so far chose to stay away from negative policy rates, but given the pressure of the ongoing recession, some cracks are appearing, with three leading policymakers of the Bank of England now showing a more open-minded attitude to the concept. From a purely macroeconomic point of view, that is, when ignoring the financial plumbing, it would make sense to at least reserve the right to take the policy rate in negative territory. Indeed, if the economy is shifting to deflation mode, and the first readings on consumer prices since the start of the pandemic have been pointing to a deceleration in inflation, then keeping a floor at zero for the short end of the curve would ultimately be consistent with rising real rates. Yet, financial plumbing can't be ignored, and it's a point we've made consistently in Macrocast throughout last year. For all the protection they are receiving at the moment from governments in the form of guarantees on loans, banks will probably face very tough conditions in the months ahead. Guarantees cover the new flow of loans originated as a response to the pandemic shock. They do not cover pre-existing loans, and while some of the new flows will make it possible for businesses to service their accumulated debt, ultimately, some rise in default is unavoidable. With negative rates eating into the profitability, banks will be faced with a double whammy. The ECB, though, has found a solution to this predicament. But making de facto the rate banks pay to obtain liquidity from the central bank lower than the tax the negative deposit rate has created on their excess reserves. This is the rationale behind bringing the interest rate on the targeted long-term refinancing operation, the TLTRO, to minus 100 basis points for the best performers in terms of lending to the private sector. Technically, this option would exist in the UK. The Bank of England would have to change the conditions on its term funding scheme, which is already resembling the TLTROs. The Fed's communication on negative rates remains quite dismissive, I know that there are there are fans of the policy, but uh, for now, it's not something that we're not something that we're considering. We think we have a good toolkit, and that's the one we'll be using. The words of Jay Powell: "This is not something we are looking at." Last week, coming on top of an elaborate discussion of the drawbacks of such policy, suggests their finger is not on this buzzer. We think specific institutional constraints on the Fed, as much as macroeconomic considerations, may be at play here. In a long blog post for the Brookings Institution in March 2016, former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke discussed the pros and cons of importing the negative rate policy in the U.S. His first point was of a legal nature: the Financial Services Regulatory Relief Act of 2006 directs the Fed to pay interest on regular and excess reserves. This might be bypassed by imposing a fee on depository institutions in exchange for managing those reserves. But Bernanke noted that by law, any fees charged by the Fed Should in the long run be commensurate with the costs the central bank would be incurring, it would be very difficult to argue that the cost of merely writing a claim by banks on its balance sheet would cost 50 basis points to the Fed. It is then quite possible that the Fed would need to wait for Congress to change the law before embarking on such policy. 
Another key point in Bernanke's post was the role that money markets funds play in the US. With negative rates on the short end of the curve, they would have a hard time avoiding breaking the buck, that is, finding themselves unable to return to the fund holders the value of their original investment. This is no longer a legal requirement, but difficulties in this sector could trigger funding difficulties in the corporate sector, for instance, if this meant that liquidity on the commercial paper market would shrink. The Fed can now rely on other instruments to deal with this. Commercial paper is now part of its quantitative easing program. But this, together with the absence of a scheme which could play exactly the same role as TLTROs in Europe, would be another hurdle to overcome. The limit to the Fed's reluctance to consider negative rates at this stage may actually lie in the exchange rate. If most other central banks go down that path, dollar-denominated cash would gradually become the only one paying a positive interest rate, albeit a paltry one. Ultimately, this would add to the upward pressure on the dollar. We're not there, and the sensitivity of the US economy to the exchange rate is relatively low, but if the crisis becomes entrenched, we think the Fed could well have to reconsider its current position. This week's focus. Well, for this week's focus, you won't be surprised um, when I say that uh, the really big, big one is going to be the release by the European Commission, normally on the 27th, uh, of its uh, recovery fund uh, proposal. Uh, we suspect it's going to be very close to what Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron uh, build up together, but the European Commission will have to come with more details. And it's going to be very interesting to gauge the reaction of the frugal four when those details come out. Thanks a lot to Yes and Supertramp for their enlightening participation in this macrocast. If you want to enhance the macrocast playlist, your suggestions are welcome directly on Twitter. My handle is in the description. I'll be happy to check in with you next Monday. And in the meantime, have a great week. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app.